from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The scandal has frozen the town. This kind of thing happens in Hollywood once a decade. There have been guys who have decorated their tables with hookers and felt totally unimpeachable about it for years. If it's true they financed it with development money, they deserve to sweat for a while. Julia Phillips, producer. I haven't spoken to Heidi Fleiss in some time. Call my press agent. Robert Evans, producer. Heidi Fleiss is a family friend of Robert Evans. Robert Evans, press agent. She's a casual friend. I'm not in her social loop. Elliot Mintz, talent manager. I have never used her professional services, and God knows I don't need to. Fortunately, I've never had to pay for sex. Billy Idol. Wednesday night. Billy Idol has met Heidi Fleiss, but doesn't know her well. There may have been sex, but there wasn't commerce. Billy Idol's publicist. We knew each other pretty well. Frankly, I had a little romantic interest in Heidi at one time. But she's sort of a businesswoman. I haven't seen her in months. 
I got a skedaddle now. Bob Crow, Texas real estate heir. And again, it's She is a mental case, and she does drugs, but there's one thing you can't take away from Heidi. She was very good. And she sat at home, and she answered those phones, and she sent those girls out, and she worked. What she built up, she really deserves because she worked very hard at it. Julie Conister, rival madam. Talk to my lawyer, Heidi Fleiss. My client is a virtual prisoner in her house since the publicity started in this matter. Anthony Brooklier, Heidi Fleiss's defense attorney. Previously on Heidi World, Heidi's high-end escort empire has come crashing down, bringing her life in the fast lane to a screeching halt at a frightening crossroads. Welcome to Heidi World. Chapter 6, Media Frenzy. The Heidi Fly scandal breaks wide in the media, making Heidi the most famous woman in the world and sending her clients into a panic. 1993-1994. Welcome back to Heidi World. I'm your host, Molly Lambert. It's August of 1993, and accused Hollywood madam Heidi Fleiss is now the center of a national media maelstrom. What began as a local story in Los Angeles has crossed into the mainstream, and everyone wants a piece of Heidi. While Heidi liked the attention and notoriety that came with being a high-end madam, she is not prepared for the onslaught of media attention that she is suddenly on the receiving end of. But Heidi Fleiss is ratings gold. Her arraignment is watched by one out of every four people who's watching TV at the time that it's on. When a woman openly seeks attention, whether for her sex appeal or smarts, or in Heidi's case, both, the media sometimes decides to attention her to death, as if to say, this is what you wanted, right? Heidi is completely freaked out about her trial, and the narrative has spun completely out of her control. People are selling her out left and right for their tabloid cut. August 10th, 1993. Heidi appears at the courtroom and gets mobbed by paparazzi who nearly knock her to the ground in her spike-heeled pumps, dark sunglasses, and conservative beige Norma Kamali mini dress. After pleading not guilty to five counts of pandering and one count of cocaine possession, Heidi exits out the back stairwell into her lawyer Anthony Brookliar's black BMW. Since Heidi won't talk, the press descend on her friends, Victoria Sellers and Benita Money, who have come out to support her. The media imply that Heidi loves all the press attention, but according to Heidi, every waking moment with the paparazzi following her was a nightmare. I was like almost trampled to death. There was a motorcycle parked outside and the cameraman just knocked it over. Cameras were swooping in under my face. Someone was pulling my hair. I was panicked. I thought someone was going to pull my clothes off. I was prepared to make a statement, but they treated my client with no respect. I'm just returning the favor. The first story about the Heidi Fly scandal in the LA Times runs August 1st. 
By August 12th, people are writing in to complain there's way too much coverage of the Heidi Fleiss scandal and that surely there must be real news to cover. Unfortunately for these hard news lovers, Heidi draws eyeballs. Let's briefly discuss the L.A. news scene in the early 90s. In 1990, the LAPD were caught beating a black man named Rodney King during a routine traffic stop when a civilian who randomly saw the abuse while trying to get footage of James Cameron filming Terminator 2 across the street saw what was happening and started filming it on a camcorder. Despite the hard video evidence of the cops beating Rodney King, they all got off in court, which led to the 1992 L.A. riots or uprisings, where the over-policed and harassed Black community expressed anger at the city of L.A. the one way that upset the ruling class, with property destruction. It was an echo of the 1965 Watts Rebellion, which also stemmed from the LAPD's racist harassment of Black drivers. News coverage of the L.A. riots focused entirely on the property damage and looting and not on the structural inequalities and racism that led to the uprisings and lootings. The continuing tensions in Los Angeles over racism, policing, and extreme financial inequality were never dealt with. Rather, they were buried. And what came to bury them? Tabloid news. In 1991, a new channel launched on cable called Courtroom Television TV, better known as Court TV. Court TV is the first television channel to run live courtroom trials as the entire format. It becomes a staple of the then-booming daytime television market as it makes for perfect ambient background noise. In July of 1993, Court TV starts airing the Lyle and Eric Menendez trial, causing a media frenzy over the two teenage boys who shot and killed their parents at the family's Beverly Hills mansion in 1989. While the Menendez brothers' story was a local sensation, the Court TV coverage made it national news. Court TV also allowed the story to take on a life of its own, with every minute of the trial now available to be parsed and processed on television. In episode two, I mentioned what the writer Ed Sanders called snuff buffs, people who showed up at criminal trials to sit in the audience and watch. With the advent of channels like Court TV, now everyone can be a snuff buff. When the Heidi Fly story breaks in 1993, every newspaper and local news channel starts running nonstop coverage, pouring over every new salacious detail, neglecting other more serious stories, the rebuilding of LA after the riots, corruption and racism in the police, and the city's deep, undealt-with wounds over race and class. But those stories are difficult, and furthermore, the LA Times, which has been printing LAPD's propaganda since its inception, does not actually want to go that deep on what's really wrong with Los Angeles. Instead, they are here to talk about Heidi Fleiss and to make the LAPD look like heroes for busting her. But people don't buy what they're selling because everybody still hates the LAPD. Heidi is not a violent criminal, and even though she's a young, rich white woman, the LAPD still went out of their way to bust her while letting all of the rich Johns off the hook. Who would possibly side with the LAPD on this or think that arresting Heidi should have been a major priority in Los Angeles, besides the LAPD and the LA Times, of course? Heidi immediately becomes an LA folk hero, Sort of like O.J. Simpson, although their crimes are very different. 
Somebody who serves as a walking middle finger to all the injustices and hypocrisies and abuses of the LAPD. Heidi has a lot of people rooting for her to beat the entrenched system that is racist, classist, and treats sex workers like criminals. If you listen to what everyone says about you, then you become their prisoner. So Heidi does what any sudden Vice Lord media superstar would do. She gives a bunch of reporters exclusive coverage of the Heidi Fleiss story straight from Heidi herself. First, she talks to Variety in an adversarial interview where she ends up threatening to leak everything for a million dollars before immediately taking the offer back. Then, in August, she goes to the LA Times, who describe her as wearing a denim shirt and exercise tights while she lounges on her couch, freaking out about the charges. The reporter Sean Hubler, who writes most of the Times' Heidi coverage and develops a friendly rapport with her, seems to think that Heidi wants it both ways. The good press without the bad. She notes that Heidi got a facial, a haircut, and her makeup done before going to her court appearance, and shows Heidi a clip of the endlessly replayed footage of her walking into the courtroom. Heidi shrugs and smiles. Sex sells? On August 13th, the LAPD launched one of their famous internal investigations to see if any of their cops were consorting with Heidi Fleiss and her friends. Fleiss tells the press that she had no special relationship with the cops and that her most recent contact with them was when she tried to file a complaint about Yvonne Nagy. She is questioned by LAPD investigators for two hours about whether she employed any cops as bodyguards or had sex with any police officers. She says those stories are nefarious gossip planted by her vindictive ex-boyfriend Yvonne Nagy. She also denies an allegation published in the New York Post that she sent girls to a birthday party for Scott Kahn, son of the actor James Kahn, and blames Yvonne Naj for this story as well. James Kahn comments. It's not true. I've had enough bad publicity in my career. I don't need this. I've got a wife and two-year-old baby. I don't go out and party. I don't want to be trashed. James Kahn, actor. Billy Idol decides to milk the press he gets for being associated with Heidi and goes on Jay Leno to deny it again. We used to go around a house and watch television. Eh, maybe order a pizza. Maybe play Yahtzee, okay? I didn't say that. I said I never paid for it. By this point, the story has gone global. The Heidi Fly scandal is no longer just an L.A. story, or even an American one, although it is uniquely American. Everyone all around the world is following the story of the woman who has brought Hollywood to its knees. Meanwhile, that woman, Heidi Fleiss, feels utterly trapped, boxed in by the press and her personal circumstances. I felt so bad that I snuck out at 1 a.m. on Monday night and wrote handwritten notes of apology to all my neighbors, telling them how sorry I was for the noise and disruption. But I ran out of stationery after the first eight notes. Even Pompadour Papers, the stationery brand she used for the notes, gets in on the press and profits. The designers hawk the Trumpeting Angels notepad that Heidi used, which they sell at trendy high-end boutique Fred Siegel. 
Trumpeting Angel Stationery becomes their number one seller, and they want to send Heidi a free pad to use at her trial. LAPD tells their officers to stop answering press questions about the Heidi Fleiss trial because various LAPD spokespeople keep providing wildly different stories. I always hear the Benny Hill music yakety sacks in my head when the cops and sheriffs are giving their crazy lying accounts of what just happened. All press inquiries are to be handled from now on by Commander David J. Gascon. The news falsely links a shooting in Malibu to high-end prostitution, and two spokespeople from the sheriff's department make statements about the Lori Dolan case that contradict each other. The Heidi Fleiss story is taking on a life of its own, separate from reality. Sound familiar? The internet exacerbates the conspiracy process to warp speed, but in any medium, as soon as a big story breaks, people come out of the woodwork claiming to have information, true or false. Mayor Richard Reardon, sensing that people are still not so hot on the cops in Los Angeles, raises the question that newspapers seemingly won't. Why was it such a top priority to bust Heidi Fleiss? And why are the cops acting like this makes the streets of Los Angeles safer in any way? Shouldn't the self-proclaimed crime fighters be going after the violent crime they claim runs rampant everywhere in L.A. without their help? Everyone in town has an opinion. Should you be going after people in this situation? That's a legitimate issue. Richard Reardon, mayor of Los Angeles. I don't understand why they have to pay for it in Hollywood. There are women who would give it away for one line in a movie. Or for no line in a movie. Eva Kapoor. August 14th, 1993. The IRS comes for Heidi as well, launching a formal investigation into her finances that ropes her dad into the proceedings for his role as co-signer on her home loan for the Tower Grove estate. While Heidi can handle there being consequences for her own actions, she cannot deal with her dad being dragged into it. August 27, 1993. Pop star Michael Jackson is accused of molesting a boy named Jordan Chandler. This scandal trumps the Heidi Fleiss scandal because Michael Jackson is an enormous worldwide superstar. But it's all connected because Jackson is under contract at Sony, the same Japanese media and electronics company that owns Columbia Pictures, where the Heidi scandal is raging. Michael Jackson also happens to employ the same private detective as Columbia's Michael Nathanson, Anthony Pelicano. Anthony Pelicano is with MJ on his world tour when he's tipped off that the cops are raiding Jackson's property looking for evidence of child pornography. Pelicano puts out a counter story alleging that the victim's family is just looking for a payout. All of this affects not just Hollywood, but the cola wars. Pepsi had recently picked up two points in market share from Coke after making Michael Jackson their new spokesperson. That summer, singer Rick James also gets convicted at the same courthouse on two charges of kidnapping and torturing women under the influence of crack cocaine. All this dirty laundry is a bonanza for the news channels, magazines, and newspapers, both tabloid and serious. Scandal always sells newspapers, but now it can also sell cable and local news. Us Magazine plans to print what is allegedly a check made out from Steve Roth's production company to Heidi Fleiss. Roth denies the check is even real and says he only saw but didn't meet Heidi once at a Thanksgiving party thrown by Nathanson. (laughs) 
Because Roth's movie Last Action Hero went so over budget and was such a big flop for Columbia, it now invites scrutiny about what exactly they wasted all that money on. Roth's rise and fall in Hollywood was swift. His production company joined Columbia Pictures for a two-year contract. His first movie was a flop, but his second movie, the Arnold Schwarzenegger meta-action comedy Last Action Hero written by Shane Black, seemed like a guaranteed blockbuster. In 1991, Roth was at Cannes with Sony executives at a giant party celebrating Last Action Hero. Two years later, in 1993, he's washed up and thinks the studio is just using the Heidi scandal as an excuse to drop his contract. Heidi is freaking out, not just about the very real possibility of going to jail, but about money to pay all the fucking lawyers she's going to need to try to avoid going to jail. Now that she's famous, that means she's fucked. She's so famous now that there's already a Heidi Fleiss impersonator named Kaina Rose, who can be hired as a faux Heidi for parties. When Heidi World returns, Heidi figures out a way to cash in on Heidi Mania with her own custom line of clothing. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Welcome back to Heidi World. Heidi, of course, wants to control the narrative, so she tries something risky, exploiting her current level of notoriety to make a little more cash, or at least try to sway public opinion over to her side more. So she makes public appearances. She appears in the audience for an NBC special called Comedy Hall of Fame that tapes at a place she knows very well, the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Heidi spends the night watching comedic legends Carol Burnett, Milton Berle, and George Burns receive honors. On September 5th, she goes to a launch party for Rick Rubin's new label, American Recordings, at the Shadow Lanes Bowling Alley. In September of 1993, Heidi announces that she has found a fun and legal way to profit off her nascent fame. She is launching a line of sleepwear and lingerie. She tells the LA Times, who say that she prefers men's shirts and sweatpants to garter belts and push-up bras. Don't make it like it's going to have holes for your tits to stick out. These are the kinds of things I would wear. Heidi faxes her designs to the LA Times and tells them that she should have a marketing deal for the line any minute now. The designs include a bias-cut silk nightgown with a leg slit a minimalist camisole, and a garment for Heidi's male fans, boxer shorts with a pocket to stash a condom. Heidi gets turned down by QVC and Home Shopping Network. She references the fact that her friend, Playboy Playmate Barbie Benton, was also kept out of that world. They're too middle America. They don't want anything controversial. Barbie Benton tried to sell a line of lingerie and even she couldn't. So, Heidi a brilliant marketing genius, says she's going to bypass home shopping television by making her own infomercial themed like a Heidi girl slumber party. I'll be wearing the stuff and I'll have on about 50 of my girls too. Not just 20-year-olds, but all ages. She shows up at a gala for the National LGBTQ Task Force, headlined by comedian Sandra Bernhardt, who performs in a leather brassiere with her band The Strap-Ons. This, too, takes place at the Beverly Hilton, where seemingly everything does. Heidi is allegedly met with gasps when she arrives for the event with her publicist, where other guests include Judith Light, Jackie Collins, and Kathy Jimmy. Heidi says she's just there to support gay rights. I think... Everybody should support this group. This is an important cause to contribute to. Something has to be done. 
Heidi also begins a series of long phone conversations with reporter Nikki Fink, who would go on to start the Hollywood trade gossip website Deadline Hollywood. She talks to Nikki Fink for Details Magazine, and Fink's Heidi Fleiss profile story runs in October of 1993 in an issue of Details with Christian Slater on the cover as a feature called Heidi Talks. By this point, Heidi is burned out on the press attention. Any sort of novelty or appeal it may have initially had has worn off as her plausible fate of going to prison sinks in. How does the magazine profile go? Take a wild guess. If I had a gun, I would just shoot myself. I can't take it. I'm being burned at the stake. Everyone who wants to see me fail, they're killing me. I'm dying every day. It's something weirder. Yesterday, someone told me I was being charged with laundering Columbia's money from Sony or something, and I was like, what? It looks like I'm going into hell. Nikki Fink sits for hours of conversations with Fleiss and comes away with the conclusion that Heidi is her own worst enemy. She sums it up by saying, forget all the media hype, the reputed glamour, and the $5,000 a pop blowjobs you've heard or read about. If there is a moral to the Heidi Chronicles, Hollywood's latest tale of immorality, it may be as follows. Young girls, wherever you are, stay away from ugly guys twice your age. Fink is the first to name Yvonne Naj as the real culprit worthy of disdain, a bona fide creep. But she can't help but also condescend to Heidi, who is at the height of her predicament. Heidi fantasizes openly about scenarios that would keep her out of jail. Some white knight from her past coming to rescue her. Meanwhile, she has pled not guilty to the charges of pandering, narcotics violations, and felony pimping. Heidi's off-the-record stories directly contradict the new image 90s Hollywood is trying to peddle of a cleaned-up, family-friendly industry where sex and drugs aren't welcome. It's just the music business where those things happen, they claim. Heidi is both astonished at the hypocrisy of her own clients and surprised that the LAPD bothered to bust her little operation after letting Madame Alex alone forever. Why did Heidi get busted now and not earlier or later? LAPD's Glenn Ackerman made busting Heidi an issue when he became captain of the vice division. He says it's because of her big mouth that the LAPD had to come for Heidi. But Nikki Fink thinks the toxic circle of Madame Alex and Yvonne Naj and Heidi and sometimes Yvonne's girlfriend Julie Conister did themselves in by constantly turning on each other and trying to turn each other in. Glenn Ackerman, who certainly has no problem running his own big mouth to the press constantly, also wanted to make a splashy media debut himself with a big sting operation. Who better than Heidi for the LAPD to make a public example of? Nikki Fink also doesn't buy Heidi's martyr act, having heard rumors that Fleiss plies her girls with drugs and knowingly sends them to unsafe Johns. Heidi also brags that she's worked much harder than Madame Alex because she's been doing it in a recession. Alex's business relied on oil money, which dried up in the 80s. As always, Heidi is by turns egomaniacal and self-effacing. She's open and self-aware about her drug use, telling the magazine that Yvonne Naj supplied her with crystal meth, but rebutting any rumors that she's a heroin junkie who's been using for six months. Madame Alex is, of course, always available for media comment on Heidi. Alex tells Nikki Fink that the cops called her to see if Heidi was having sexual relations with any officers around West L.A. 
There were 10 girls in my house practically crying, saying, we need you back. Nothing is right now. And I'm saying, give me three years. I'll be successful at whatever I do, and I'll share with all of you. If I had 20 million right now, I'd give 19 of it away. That's what I said, and I really mean it too. Also, in October, Heidi's best friend, Victoria Sellers, is arraigned for a traffic stop where cops find an ounce of weed in her purse and a gun in the car driven by her friend, who is drunk. On October 25th, Lisa Henson officially replaces Michael Nathanson as head of production at Columbia. On Halloween, someone writes into the LA Times despairing the sad state of fame saying the fact that people like Heidi Fleiss and the cast of the first ever reality show, The Real World on MTV, can become famous is the sign of a dying culture. November 1st, the LA Times runs a story about a sculptor from Northridge named Russell Michael, who claims he saw Heidi's house surrounded by paparazzi when he was installing a gate he designed at a house down the street. He left a note for Heidi in her mailbox saying if she wanted, he'd be happy to build her a gate that would provide her some more privacy. Heidi thought it might be a trap, but called and asked Michael to send his portfolio. She told him that paparazzi and tabloid TV reporters had breached her driveway and walked all the way back into her yard, sabotaging her with cameras by the pool. So Michael designs a gate that both blocks the hordes and scares them a little. What impresses me is that he is self-taught and works in so many mediums. He uses stone, steel, wood. It's amazing. The finished gate is called As Beautiful As It Is Dangerous. A metal pattern of vine work and leaves is legitimately sharp and would injure someone trying to climb over. It's also tall enough to stop anyone from being able to look over it. Fleiss likes the gate so much, she commissions follow-ups from Michael, including a wishing well garden feature. Russell Michael seems like a bit of a hustler himself. He likes the press and free publicity in association with Heidi Fleiss brings. His biggest venture to date as a sculptor is a fake stone replica of Rome's famous Trevi fountain for a restaurant in the wealthy West Valley suburb of Woodland Hills. While her clients are running from the very mention of her name, Everyone else in L.A. and the whole country is chasing Heidi Fleiss. The story has everything a tabloid could ever want. Sex, drugs, money, powerful people, and big institutions. The Heidi Fleiss story is, to put it bluntly, sexy. And there's no death involved, although the media starts sniffing around instantly for deaths that they can blame on Heidi and therefore on the very idea of prostitution. By this point, Heidi and the news media are twin flames. She is set on getting her story out there herself. She even knows that a lot of people are rooting for her. After all, the LAPD uprisings didn't exactly make the LAPD look like the hero cops they think of themselves as. And busting a nice young businesswoman like Heidi Fleiss doesn't make them look great either. And if there's one place that Heidi can outgame the LAPD's longtime connection to the LA Times... It's on the other news media outlets that she can control. So Heidi, of course, books another interview with the woman of the hour, herself, her biggest one yet, an exclusive for Connie Chung at CBS on November 4th at 10 p.m. on Eye to Eye with Connie Chung. 
The LA Times finds ways to endlessly spin content out of the Heidi story, even when there's no new actual information to run. Much like the nascent court TV, it fills people's appetites for a constant stream of content. They run a story about how the success of 1990s Pretty Woman led to a bumper crop of movies about prostitutes being developed. Pretty Woman is a movie starring Richard Gere as a handsome businessman who hires a beautiful Hollywood hooker for the night and turns her into a high-class lady, Pygmalion style. It was originally supposed to be a serious drama about prostitution and then became a Gary Marshall project and turned into a mostly light romantic comedy about two very hot people, one of whom happens to be a sex worker, falling in love. Now, as we know by this point, aspects of this story were not too far removed from reality. There were rich businessmen hiring women to pose as high-class dates. Don Simpson, in particular, was known for hiring Heidi girls and telling his friends they were brain surgeons. Pretty Woman is produced by Regency International Pictures and Disney's adult film shingle Touchstone Pictures and distributed by Disney's Buena Vista Studio. Now, just a rabbit hole for fun. One of Pretty Woman's producers, Arnon Milchon of Regency, was allegedly an Israeli intelligence agent and nuclear arms dealer before he became a producer. Besides the second generational stuff, another fun aspect of the Heidi story is how many people in Hollywood have crazy backstories like this. So Arnon Milchon worked for Lekem, which was an Israeli military intelligence agency. He got roped in with the nuclear arms dealing stuff when a guy named Richard Kelly Smith got busted buying something called Crytron through Milchan's company, Milco. As far as I, a person who knows very little about nuclear science can tell, a Crytron is something like a doomsday switch that can be used to trigger perfectly harmless things, but is better known for igniting exploding bridge wire and slapper detonators in nuclear weapons. Richard Kelly Smith allegedly helped Arnon Milchan smuggle 810 Krytrons to Israel in the 1980s. 469 were returned to America, and Israel said the other 341 were, quote, destroyed in testing. Milchan didn't confirm publicly that he had been an Israeli asset until 2013, when it was all documented in a book called Confidential, the life of secret agent turned Hollywood tycoon about Arnon Milchan that mostly seems pretty impressed with him. In the meantime, Milchan's production company Regency made some of my favorite movies of all time, including Martin Scorsese's The King of Comedy, Oliver Stone's JFK, and Curtis Hansen's LA Confidential. He's also still alive and producing movies. Most recently, he co-produced The Northman. I know the joke of the mobster who gets into movies is done a lot, but it's honestly so funny that this guy may have come to LA just to smuggle some nuclear weapons to Israel and ended up a super successful producer who made a bunch of great movies. Fucking Hollywood, man. Which leads me to the question, is Richard Gere playing Jeffrey Epstein in the movie Pretty Woman? Pretty Woman's original ending was supposed to have Gere's character throwing the Julia Roberts character out of the car and it became a Cinderella story fairy tale about a sex worker falling in love with her John. Heidi Mania hits right as Disney is trying to move forward with Pretty Woman 2. Also mentioned is a movie being developed at Disney's other production shingle, Hollywood Pictures, called Sexual Healing, by none other than Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer, a thriller about a high-class call girl in the world of Washington, D.C. 
Captain Glenn Ackerman has publicly announced that the Los Angeles Police Department has no intention of prosecuting the male customers of Ms. Fleiss. This official position, while certainly comforting to males who would otherwise be prosecuted, smacks of a boys' club mentality, which can have no place if equal protection of the law is to have real meaning. November 3rd, 1993, Heidi tries to get the pandering charges against her dismissed on the grounds that the LAPD unfairly target sex workers, but not their customers. Heidi's lawyer, Anthony Brookliar, more on him later, files a motion with Assistant District Attorney Alan Carter, contending that Fleiss was set up in a sting and should be charged with attempted pandering, not pandering itself. November 17th. The paparazzi camp out all day Monday waiting for Heidi to appear, so she shows up Tuesday the 17th instead, when no cameras are lurking in wait. She sneaks into the courthouse through the stairwell entrance, taking the stairs up to the 13th floor, and appears before a superior court judge whose name is, astoundingly, Judge Judith L. Champagne. She gets the pretrial hearing postponed from that week to December 3rd. Also that week, a Heidi Fleiss-inspired plotline begins airing on the Fox nighttime soap opera Melrose Place, the greatest TV show ever made. Melrose Place was a spinoff of Beverly Hills 90210 about a group of Gen X sexy singles and one couple living in a bungalow court apartment building in L.A. Like 90210, it started as a down-to-earth social issues show with episodes about the L.A. riots and then increasingly went off the rails. The show's second season was a different, sluttier animal from the first, in which they introduced Heather Locklear as a girl boss bitch and the show's signature hat fights by the pool. I love this show because it has two different types of crazy redheads. Marsha Cross as crazy type A doctor Kimberly Shaw and Laura Layton as Sydney Andrews, a chaos demon. All you need to know about Sydney is that she immediately tries to seduce her sister's husband. So, Sydney, of course, gets the Heidi Fleiss plotline, which the writers put on the show as a ripped-from-the-headline attempt to lure viewers. Sydney is approached by a fellow waitress played by Gina Gershon, who invites her to meet a woman named Lauren Etheridge, who it turns out runs a high-end escort ring. Sydney becomes an escort and immediately gets busted and goes to jail. It's a pretty brief plotline, but it did serve its intended purpose of bolstering the show's ratings, leading the show towards more and more sordid stunt plotlines. The Heidi effect is strong. December 3rd, the pretrial hearing. Heidi stays home while her attorney, Anthony Brookliar, makes his argument that Heidi is being discriminated against due to sexism. He cites the comments that LAPD gave to the media about how they have no intention of going after any of Heidi's customers, just Heidi and her girls. He also cites a rarely used 88-year-old law against paying money or any other valuable thing for any person for the purpose of prostitution. Glenn Ackerman testifies that he can't think of a single time that a prostitute's customer was charged with a felony. He can only remember busting Johns on misdemeanors when people who live near street prostitution areas complained about the noise. Ackerman says they've never arrested a single customer of a high-end call girl or escort service. Ackerman also says the 1905 statute invoked by Brookliar is known as the uh, white slave law and is intended only for prosecuting sex traffickers. 
Deputy District Attorney Alan Carter raises the possibility of filing charges against some of Heidi's male clients, which would also make the Johns' names public. Judge Judith L. Champagne denies Brookliar's motion to get Heidi's charges reduced from pandering to attempted pandering on the grounds that she was a victim of a police sting. The hearing is continued to December 17th, while the cops scramble to see if anyone has ever been charged for purchasing sex, not just for selling it. After the trial, Carter admits he isn't sure if it's possible legally to prosecute the Johns and hasn't run the idea by his boss, District Attorney Gil Garcetti, who is, yes, the father of L.A. fail-son Mayor Eric Garcetti. December 4th, Heidi makes another public appearance, and this time it's not even at the Beverly Hilton. It's at a different hotel, the Bonaventure, in downtown L.A., a 70s postmodern building that was the backdrop for a recent Fenty Savage lingerie fashion show. Heidi is there for, of all things, a classic rock station's yearly rock expo where vendors are selling rock and roll memorabilia and records from the archives of radio station KMAT FM along celebrities doing autograph signings. Heidi is one of the celebrities, signing headshots for her fans alongside rock stars like Mick Fleetwood, George Thorogood, and Kenny Loggins. And yes, I found Getty images of this that I will post on the Patreon. When Heidi World returns, three Los Angeles escorts tell all. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Welcome back to Heidi World. December 13th, 1993. It isn't just, oh, I never thought it would end this way. I never thought it would end. Marilyn, former Heidi girl. On December 13th, the LA Times runs a triple profile of three call girls, two of whom are Heidi girls. Sean Hubler talks to a 23-year-old Heidi girl who we'll call Marilyn, a breathy blonde in a short pink gingham dress who smokes Capri cigarettes. Marilyn came to L.A. with dreams of acting and may well leave with nothing but her pink scrapbook of her days as a $1,500 an hour Heidi girl. She has blown through the $12,000 she kept hidden in a teddy bear. Since Heidi got busted, she's been questioned by police and tailed by reporters She had told her parents that Heidi was her acting agent, so when Heidi appeared on the cover of People as the sex broker to the stars, she tried calling to explain, but her mother hung up on her. She's now trying to turn her life story into a TV movie to cash in on Heidi Mania. It's going to be a two-hour movie. My lawyer's setting it up. It'll say, based on a true story of Hollywood... Like so many beautiful girls from all over, Marilyn came to Los Angeles to become a star. Instead, she found herself working two jobs to afford Los Angeles while trying to save up for acting lessons and make time for auditions. By day, she worked as a secretary for an accountant in the Valley for $9 an hour. At night, she was a waitress at the Rainbow Bar and Grill, a notorious rock star hangout on, you guessed it, the Sunset Strip. She dated her way through some musicians, but found it hard to gain any traction in the entertainment industry. Marilyn saves up $4,000 in cash tips from waitressing, only to have it all stolen from her by a sketchy roommate. So, when a Rainbow customer asks if she wants to meet his friend Heidi Fleiss, who she has already heard tale of, she says yes. At the time, I had no money and no place to go. I'd never been on my own before. I never dreamed life could be so hard. 
Heidi approves of her and invites Marilyn to move into the Tower Grove mansion with her and the other girls. After a few months in Heidi's ritualistic, cool 90s girl makeover, she sends Marilyn on her first out call. It was exciting. It was me and one other girl. We went to Paris for a week with an Arab prince who took us shopping at Chanel. Marilyn thinks she has a better chance of breaking into the entertainment industry this way than just by auditioning, and soon enough, she's at a Christmas party with a producer who introduces her to his friends as a member of his bowling team. A businessman from Hong Kong asks for a year-long contract to make her his mistress. One real estate guy gives her 4K for one night. Working for Heidi Fleiss, she discovers, is a form of networking. She meets everyone in the entertainment industry— trade writers, agents, more rock stars. And if you can take yet another colorful character in this story, whose ties span Hollywood and the underworld, she is also introduced to a guy named Vince Conti. Vince Conti is a photographer and actor, best known for playing Sergeant Rizzo on the cop show Kojak. Shortly before Heidi was busted, the 63-year-old Conti copped felony pandering charges of his own and was sentenced to three years. Conti was not a pimp per se, but he was an arranger of mutually beneficial sexual transactions. The cut was not in cash, but favors. He would introduce a rich European to some nice young women who liked rich old men, and in return, the rich guy would set him up with a photography studio in Beverly Hills. Vince Conti, like Yvonne Nage, knows people in both Hollywood and the world of vice and is able to parlay his connections between the two worlds into personal influence that benefits him. You know, look, I run into pretty good echelon of people. I got pretty girls around all the time. They come to my studio. I say, Joe, say hello to Mary Ann. What consenting adults do? I I got no control over that. Vince Conti. Conti claims in an interview that he sets up his good friends with aspiring actresses for no reason other than to be a good guy. His photography portfolio includes the likes of Michelle Pfeiffer, Cher, and Demi Moore. And again, I urge you to read Demi Moore's book for more on this time period. So Conti introduces our girl Marilyn to a European dignitary and a former California politician. But escorting doesn't really help her book any acting other than some bit parts. But who needs an acting career when your side gig is going this well? Marilyn wakes up at noon and goes to bed at 4 a.m. on a handful of downers to quell the night's cocaine. She uses names like Tiffany and Sheena with clients, earning enough cash to drop a grand on one dress if she desires. But escorting is a gig-to-gig job, much like acting or virtually every job now. So there would be dry periods where Marilyn booked no work. When she tried to book work without Heidi through her own connections, she ended up in some bad situations, like the Palm Springs date with a pro wrestling producer who promised her and a friend $5,000 and a quarter ounce of cocaine, only to pay them with a check that immediately bounced. When they tried confronting his wife at her house, she just laughed at them and said her husband had been broke for years. Two of the girls in the LA Times piece asked to be anonymous. The third girl is Brandy McLean. People always expect some girl with, like, red lipstick and bleach blonde hair, sequin dress and spiked pumps. But it's a misconception. I don't even own a pair of spiked pumps. 
Brandy McLean. Sean Hubler describes Brandy as athletic and muscular, wearing a cutoff tee, running shorts, and wire-rimmed sunglasses, offering the reporter some of her vegetarian casserole she made when they meet up at her San Diego apartment. Brandy McLean has decided to flip on Heidi, even though she was never charged after being taken into custody at the Beverly Hilton bust. McLean is not angry at Heidi. She tells Hubler how she decided to get into Heidi's game. I was living in New York, working with a florist two years ago, and there was this girl I ran with in Central Park, and she always seemed to have money, and she had beautiful furniture. And I thought, how does she do it? I mean, she was in nursing school. Well, one day she told me, and like, I never would have guessed. Sad wealthy friend introduced Brandy to Heidi. Heidi told Brandy what the work entailed, assuring her that everything would be on the up and up. Rich clients, no weirdos. She signed up and in a month was partying in Las Vegas with a rich middle-aged man. It was like going on a weekend date, except it was very lucrative. Brandy, who was enrolled in a San Diego community college, started driving up to L.A. a couple times a month to gig for Heidi. She says she did it just enough to cover her rent, but there's also no denying she was drawn in by the more glamorous aspects of being a Heidi girl. Brandy wanted to cash in on her youthful, blonde, beach volleyball good looks, but was too short for real modeling and uninterested in acting. She was also not interested in a desk job 9-to-5 lifestyle. And she was very beautiful, if too skinny for some of Heidi's richest clients from overseas. There were kids of celebrities, trust fund babies, one European billionaire. Usually I would meet them at their house. That is, the house their wives weren't at. And we'd go to dinner. Nikki Blair's or Spago or Bistro. Then maybe a club and then back to the house. And then, well, whatever. Have sex. Do what you want. What they want. While Brandy McLean was not an actress, she knew how to play her role on these dates. She'd pretend to be floored by the John's gold records or wildly impressed by their Oscar. The trick would introduce her to their friends as his assistant or girlfriend. These men didn't just want transactional sex behind closed doors. They wanted arm candy to show off in public. They craved the girlfriend experience, probably because they'd all been losers in high school. In Hollywood, the land of fantasy, these men were paying for the fantasy that a beautiful, fun, sexy young girl like Brandy McLean would ever want to hang out with them if there wasn't money involved. But Brandy was in it for something else. Money. You tell me one job where you can make $1,500 an hour. One job. A doctor doesn't make that much. A lawyer twice a month and there you go your bills are paid besides anybody can get a job at like the limited but how many girls could keep a billionaire interested i did sean hubler then hits the pantry diner to talk with a call girl who she gives the pseudonym leanne leanne is not a heidi girl she's a 35 year old escort who's been in the business since she was 29 Leanne reached out to the press when they were speculating about the death of a woman presumed to be a prostitute and Heidi girl because she wanted to tell the press that there was no way that the dead girl knew Heidi. And this is probably about Lori Dolan. As with anything else, there are echelons in this business. (laughs) 
God, I've slept with the masses. Leanne. Leanne works a lower rung than Heidi's girls, the middle, $400 an hour for mostly older businessmen and a few former politicians, with a three-hour minimum for a local date. She specializes in charging the service to her clients' corporate credit cards and making it look plausible that they'd just spent a few hundred bucks on a legitimate work expense. Leanne also specializes in appearing as an age-appropriate escort for older men, a woman in pearls and sweater sets that one might mistake for a rich man's wife. But beneath the sweater sets lie her secrets, and her clientele is not so different from Heidi's. Aging rock stars are a perennial client pool. She talks of playing doctor with doctors, getting double-teamed by comedy teams, and of the many powerful men with secretive private lives where they like to wear silk slips or get tied up and spanked. One movie producer in particular pays her to dress him up as Ava Gardner and compliment him, Oh, Ava, you look wonderful tonight. Oh, you learn more about men than you would ever need to know for the rest of your life. Leanne's labors net her an estimated $300,000 a year, which buy her a house in the San Fernando Valley with a pool, a jacuzzi, and a vegetable garden. Unlike Heidi, she purposely keeps a low profile. She bought her mom a new car, but she mostly doesn't splash out on expensive stuff. The money is great, but she does feel like her job makes it harder to date people. Men will say they can handle her occupation, then reveal that they actually can't. They say they love you, but when it comes time to end the relationship, they're the first ones to turn around and say, you fucking whore. But she doesn't regret her choice. What's so great about regular old transactional heterosexuality anyway? (sighs) Do you know how many women are going to El Torito on a Friday or Saturday night and giving it away for three or four margaritas? Whereas I can go for a couple of hours, collect my money, stop at whatever restaurant I want on my way home, decide who I want to sit across from and what I want to eat, and not put up with anybody's shit. The story then returns to Marilyn, showing Sean Hubler what's in the pink scrapbook. Pictures of her at nightclubs, partying with friends, in Las Vegas with Brandy McLean. She asks Hubler if she wants to see a home video that she made at Heidi's Tower Grove mansion. Hubler, of course, says sure, and watches as Marilyn pops in her videotape of home movies from Heidi's house. In one, she gives a tour of the mansion while wearing an Azadine Alaya cat suit, the girl's favorite designer. There's some footage from last Christmas, including a bathrobed Charlie Sheen giving his holiday regards to one of the girl's mothers. Sheen's publicist says the video was made as a favor for a woman whose mother had cancer and that Charlie Sheen had no idea whether the women were call girls. He didn't ask and they didn't tell. The profile ends on a bittersweet note, with Marilyn telling Sean Hubler how she's become afraid to fall asleep next to a man. When things go badly, like they did in Palm Springs, or now with Heidi Busted, she can get to wondering where her life is going. She has a moment of realization seeing a former client in public at a department store called The Broadway. She locks eyes with the John who is there with his wife and child, and wonders if anyone loves honestly. It leaves you wondering what's it really like to, you know, 
make love? What's it like not to put on an act? It's nice to have someone treat you with respect and buy you things and take you for rides in his Ferrari Testarossa, but he catches up with you emotionally. You can't help but see the larger news angle creeping in here again, aiming to make prostitution seem not only immoral, but bad for the soul. It seems silly, even in this context, because the clearly stated reasons for Marilyn's bad experiences were A, booking on her own, and B, Heidi getting busted, not because she posed any danger to anyone, but as a statement on the morality of prostitution, a profession that is older than dirt, but always incites a moral panic in America. It feels like Marilyn and the reader are led towards a conclusion of, oh, but this is bad, because the LA Times cannot allow the jump to the natural conclusion that sex work is fine, the issue is criminalization and the Puritan insistence in America that this doesn't happen here. December 19th, 1993. Madame Alex lists her West Hollywood house. Already a downgrade from Casa Pussy in Beverly Hills and her Malibu mansion. Since being forced out of madaming by her 1991 pandering conviction, Alex has used her managerial skills to start a catering business. But catering hasn't taken off quite like sex did, so Alex is forced to sell her cottage, which was built in 1924. December 23rd, 1993, Heidi goes to the press on her own-ish terms again to be on the cover of Esquire Magazine's Yearly Dubious Achievements Awards issue. The Dubious Achievements Awards were a running gag in Esquire with funny mean joke items about public figures given to various public figures every year from 1962 until they were discontinued in 2001 after September 11th. Dubious Achievements was such a hit that it basically paved the way for other good snotty mean funny magazines like National Lampoon and Spy. The connection is the house style of quippy, insidery, sometimes very mean writing about notable people. You will recognize this style from the internet, where it is now the house style for everything. So Heidi appears on the cover of Esquire doing a parody of a super famous photo of Janet Jackson that appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone, where Janet is topless in half-unbuttoned jeans, with her breasts being cupped from behind by her then-husband, Renee Elizondo, who is out of frame. It was a very sensational photo at the time and spawned a million parodies. In the Esquire parody cover, Heidi Fleiss is topless, staring right at the camera, her jeans rolled down to reveal some Heidiwear boxer shorts, and her breasts are being grasped from behind by hands, one of which wears a signature white glove. The cover line is Heidi and Michael, who knew? Surrounded by smaller images with jokes about Barney the Dinosaur, Fabio, and John Wayne Bobbitt. Ah, 1993. Once again, Heidi is showing us that she is in on the joke. She is steering the narrative naturally towards where it actually wants to go. Heidi is not a criminal, She's a folk hero standing up to the corruption and hypocrisy of L.A.'s richest men and the disgusting police forces that protect them. How are women working in the film industry in Hollywood dealing with the fallout of the Heidi scandal? Funny you asked. The Heidi Fleiss scandal exposes some of the fault lines in the movie business, a boys club of all boys clubs that in the early 90s is supposedly opening doors for women. 
What does it mean to find out that maybe Hollywood isn't actually as progressive as it says it is, and that their male peers might still see women primarily as objects to be bought and sold? Is that why they want to make movies like Pretty Woman or Indecent Proposal, the Adrian Lyne-directed movie where a broke couple played by Woody Harrelson and Demi Moore agree to let the girlfriend have sex with a rich guy played by Robert Redford for a million dollars? Indecent Proposal was a huge success in 1993, and while directed by Adrian Lyne, it was written and developed by women. Are movies like this brave for depicting sex workers as people with minds and hearts, or do men in Hollywood just think that all women are whores? Here is a range of takes. These guys really do feel more comfortable in the company of hookers because that is how they see women. Julia Phillips, producer. Honestly, I'm irritated that the only power in movies that goes to women is sexual power. In life, that's the only power that men can easily give to women. I find it very simplistic and a true stretch to think of that as empowering women in any way. Meg Ryan, actor. So this is the year of the woman. Well, yes, this has been a very good year for women. Demi Moore was sold to Robert Redford for $1 million. Uma Thurman went for $40,000 to Mr. De Niro. While just three years ago, Richard Gere bought Julia Roberts for, what was it, $3,000? I'd say that was real progress. Michelle Pfeiffer, actress at the Crystal Awards luncheon. The Demi Moore character is in control of her body and makes all the decisions. She chooses to sleep with Robert Redford and makes the decision. Woody Harrelson doesn't do that. To me, that is what feminism is all about. Sherry Lansing, chief of Paramount Pictures. See, the problem with the movie, it's a huge problem, is if we don't do this right, it's like Woody's the pimp and Demi's the whore. Adrian Lyne, director. Some male critics would like to dismiss Indecent Proposal as sexist. The only thing that is sexist is the critics themselves. They're clearly made uncomfortable by a film in which a woman holds tremendous power over not one, but two men, one of whom is her husband. Powerful women who do what they like with their bodies make men like Kenneth Turan uncomfortable. Men are very emotional about sex. Women are practical. Amy Holden Jones, screenwriter of Indecent Proposal. If they ever make a movie where a man is sexually harassed, I'm their gal. Sharon Stone, actress. December 30th, 1993. Heidi turns 28 years old. December 31st, 1993. Yvonne Naj, forced out of the escorting business, for now at least, also has a new venture, technology. Naj is going full throttle into the brand new field of CD-ROMs, the digital proto-DVD technology that briefly ascended past floppy disks in the early 90s. More specifically, he is trying to break into the emerging space of CD-ROM erotica, a sex leads all new forms of technology. He has a new company called Mac Daddy Entertainment. Look, this is Mr. Multimedia himself, the Digitola of CD-ROM. That is my new title. Mac Daddy Entertainment's first release is a CD-ROM called Heidi's Girls, 
The LA Times piece says CD-ROMs are compact discs that hold digital images, sound, graphics, and text, and play on devices hooked up to personal computers. While the consumer market for the shiny discs remains small, Ivan Naj believes his product is sure to draw attention. The Heidi's Girls CD-ROM is a cache of 150 images of five women in lingerie at a fancy hotel. There is also a Euro version that has the images with full nudity. It was only appropriate. Where else would you shoot a Heidi girl but in a hotel suite? Naj partnered on the project with Alan Adler, a computer programmer who worked at local camera store Sammy's Camera, running the digital images division, after a Sammy's customer suggested the idea. Naj handled the photography end and Adler the digitization. The real Heidi has no involvement with the project or the girls on Yvonne's CD-ROM, and she wants everyone to know. They're probably his girlfriends. What's my response? Who cares? He's pathetic. What can I say? I, I am certainly not basing a company on Heidi Fleiss. We're just, you know, kicking it off with this. It will introduce the company name to everybody because of the press attention we will get. Yvonne Naj says he'll be premiering the Heidi's Girls CD-ROM at trade shows like Macworld in San Francisco and the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which for years famously took place at the same time as the Adult Video News Awards so that there could be overlap between the two. Her ex-boyfriend Bernie Kornfeld's connection to Heidi is uncovered by some journalists who try to get comment from him. He calls Heidi to reassure her that he is still there for her and always will be. I don't know what his financial situation was. I do know that he was able to come up with a million dollars whenever he wanted. Bernie Kornfeld has decamped from the United States entirely, after telling Heidi that the IRS were coming for him, asking for $92 million. He has gone to his castle in France, taking 10 gorgeous women on his private jet with him. But Heidi Fleiss is stuck in Los Angeles, wishing that she was on a private jet instead, headed somewhere glamorous, chic, and far, far away from her troubles. Next time on Heidi World, Heidi Fleiss goes to trial in downtown Los Angeles on pandering charges, and she is terrified. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information hey guys back at the playground again huh yep you know what this playground could use a wine country heck yeah and some waves so we could go surfing oh (laughs) Ah, love that a redwood forest would be cool i'm in ah ski slopes let's do it um tenor girl go shopping wait did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.